0: I'd like to begin tonight's talk with a um, verse from Sri Ramakrishna. A longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Your naked awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. O longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. So we speak a lot here about true nature and about Buddha nature. And I'd like to explore tonight uh, really what it is that prevents us from resting in that wakefulness, that goodness, that beauty which is our source? How do we turn away? And the practices, really, that we are doing together that reveal what is always and already here. Many years ago, at one of my very first Buddhist retreats, one of the teachers looked around at us and And asked a question which was, How many of you really trust that you are a Buddha? You're an awakening Buddha, a Bodhisattva. And I remember in my mind I went, Absolutely, sometimes, (laughs) you know, it was one of those. But it was great because over the next few days I kind of posed this question, you know, who am I taking myself to be right now? And it really revealed the degree of of selfing, of having an idea of a self basically that was on her way to something hopefully better, that was working on a problem, a self that was improving, a self that was having a hard time, a self that wanted to look good. But over and over again there was you know, I'd find that there was some sometimes obvious and sometimes subtle sense of this self that was watching what was happening or things were happening to her, but selfness. And, and that in those moments, there wasn't a sense of the vastness and the radiance and the love, which really is our source. There was a forgetting... So, my sense is that for many of us, we have a, a map in our mind of being on our way somewhere. And that um, Buddha nature, true nature, is maybe down the road. Maybe it's possible, but not here yet. Something we're working on. I, um, when my son was young, in the first, maybe, first through fifth grades, I sent him to a Waldorf school, and one of the stories that was floating around was told by an art teacher that was in her classroom, and the children were working on drawings, and one of them was particularly diligent, so she stood behind this little girl and, and said, what are you drawing? And the little girl announced, well, I'm drawing God. And the teacher kind of chuckled and said, well, hon, nobody knows what God looks like. And without skipping a beat, without even looking up, she said, well, they will in a moment. (laughs) 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 And I thought that was great, because, you know, we, there's that sense of losing that confidence in what we know. Somebody sent me a few years ago this cartoon and it had these fleas wandering in a forest of fur wondering whether there really is a dog, you know? (laughs) So when we think what we long for is out there, down the road, somewhere else, we really can't relax fully and recognize just what's here. There's this, Instead, there's this kind of chronic, uh, there's something more, something else to do. You can see it in your sitting when, when meditation can be pretty quiet, but there's some monitoring of, okay, what should I do next to make sure I'm getting the most or going the deepest? Or, there's some place that thinks there's something to do so we can get there. Um, my story on that regard is that when I was 20, I moved into a ashram, spiritual community, kind of yoga-based ashram, very strong sadhana, spiritual practice. We'd get up at 3.30 in the morning and do yoga and meditation and chanting. And um, I had this notion, it was, it was these purification practices, and my notion was if I really went for it that in oh, six, seven, eight years, I should be pretty liberated. And so I really went for it. I was very type A, as many of us use that expression. And one thing I do is periodically um, go and meet with another teacher somewhere, and and I always had that same question as, so what else can I do? Like, what would help, you know, me wake up? And almost to a T, almost every one of them responded the same way, which was, just relax. And i go, yeah, relax, that's the thing, you know, and that would be my next... (laughs) We really don't, somewhere deep down, if we're in this mind state of Buddha nature out there, down the road, it's not really okay to deeply relax. There's some sense of needing to be vigilant. The Buddha offered a really radical basic teaching that we find really in all the non dual traditions. And it's that we are never separated from bodhicitta, from the awakened heart mind, not for a moment any more than you could say waves are separated from ocean so even the times we feel most stuck or contracted we're actually never alienated from the awakened state it just feels that way and, and this is really revolutionary when you think of it it's just that we might conceptually understand it but to really in a cellular way no we're never separated from that which we long for. So even all of us, these us ordinary humans with our neurosis and hang-ups and self-doubts and confusion and addictions, it's, it's all of us have this essential wakefulness and love, this goodness of being, every one of us. So the question that the Buddha investigated and that we explore here is, how is it that we, we turn away from that essence, from that goodness? How does our mind and being get fixated and contracted? And that's what we've been exploring here. A story that I have gone back to again and again that was useful was um, took place in, in Boulder at... Um, at one of Chogyam Trungpa's gatherings at, at Naropa, and in it, as it's described, he had this huge poster kind of, of white paper, and he drew a little V on it, and um, said, what's this? And, and most of the students said, well, you know, it's a bird. And finally he said, no, it's the sky with a bird flying through it. that basic shift, which is really a shift in view that um, in a deep way can help us to include what we're forgetting just to remember that vastness this is uh, Huang Po who really describes how we lose sight of the truth of who we are This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it, blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing. They do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source substance. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash that source substance would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. So the power of a retreat like this is that regardless of what particular practice we're doing we begin to see with increasing clarity how we go in and out of the thinking trance. Every one of us is recognizing that. How we get trapped in it in the world, get small and then when we wake up over and over again realizing, oh, this vividness, this realness this stream of experiencing that we were missing out on this awareness the space of awareness so as we've talked about there are a number of ways that through conceptual mind we we block the realness and the beauty of what's here perhaps one of the most basic is that we cannot see life as it is if we add on any idea of something's wrong in any moment and It happens most with the difficult emotions, perhaps, that there's some layer of, this is not okay. We can't arrive fully. I know for myself that I'll I'll discover fears there, and I'll be being with it, recognizing it, kindness, and still there's some undercurrent that it shouldn't be there, or if this were really an awakened moment, if my meditation were really on track it wouldn't be happening. It's okay that it's happening, but it wouldn't be happening if things were really okay. That kind of undercurrent. So there are many different expressions of how this selfing comes in and makes things wrong, and sometimes it's indifference or anger or discouragement. There's that undercurrent. I read this, that the Utah jazz president was talking with a former football player and He writes this. He says, "I told him. So what is it with you? Is it ignorance or apathy?" He said, "Coach, I don't know and I don't care." (laughs) Eyeing and mying Ajahn Buddha Dasa put those words on as our way of doing selfing. That what's going on, we take personally. We think it's happening to me. It was caused by me. It's going to affect the me in the future. A friend of mine, some of you might know, Jan Willis, who's an African-American teacher, writer, um, Tibetan student, was telling me how she was on retreat in Asia some years ago. And she began to get really irritated with her fellow Americans who were being rude. They did not were not on good behavior. And when she went to speak to her teacher about it, he kind of made light of it he didn't really pay attention that made her all the more vehement she had to let him know how wrong things were and finally he kind of stopped her very kindly and he said you know buddha mind is angry today (laughs) and she said how fantastic like in a moment it was like anger was there but it wasn't her anger it was like a weather system she really got it Buddha mind is angry today. It's like the sky with the bird flying through. So that's in a sense our challenge and invitation is to begin to recognize the selfing, the conceptual mind that that owns things, eyeing and mying, and begin to recognize it's changing. It's just happening. The practices we're doing here, I in a sense find it helpful to think of in two categories. Um, The different ways that we're paying attention to clinging, relaxing the grip, and realizing what's really here. And one of the modes that I think of it as is that we're paying attention to the waves or stream of experiences. We're paying attention to the sensations, to the emotions, to the thoughts, as they come and go. And then the other way is instead of paying attention to what we might call the objects or subjects of our experience, we're actually turning it in the most subjective way to pay attention to awareness itself. So I'd like to just review tonight those two and their relationship between to each other. That in the first as most of us are doing here, we spend some time quieting, concentrating, maybe perhaps metta, gladdening the mind. And then for many, as as we continue, really the practice is to attend directly to the stream of experience, to see this arising and dissolving life just as it is. And what happens as we do that, as we bring kindness and mindfulness to that stream, that to the degree that there's been an identification, an angry self, a wanting self, a fearing self, in the moments of recognizing, there's a shift in our sense of identity. There's an enlarging. We become the awareness that's paying attention. For many, the language that was described that Ajahn Chah used of still flowing water really describes this beautifully that we pay attention to the flowing experience and the very nature of paying attention allows us to discover that presence that's unconditioned, that stillness, that wakefulness, that tenderness. In um, one story I read, this is uh, written by Norman Fisher, who many of you know, Um he describes uh, the Zen teaching he was receiving as really to trust yourself and to trust yourself completely. And he describes in the story how difficult that was, how he would try to do it as hard as he could, but find that that self he was trying to trust was insubstantial. He'd try to trust his opinions and his opinions would change. He'd try to trust his ideas and he'd realize how flimsy they were. So this is what he writes. He says, so I was pretty mixed up. Then it dawned on me that I had been misunderstanding the message. It was not to trust myself as self, but to trust my experience as it arose. And my experience consisted not only of what was inside my head, but also of many other things. When I saw clouds, clouds were my experience. When I heard a bird, the song was my experience. When someone told me what a jerk I was, that was my experience not something coming from someplace else to be defi- find out and defended against. So in this way, I worked very hard at trusting my experience, absolutely, even my mixed-up thinking, right to the end, staying with it, not glancing off. And finally, I could find always, at the end of my experience, whether I liked the experience or not, a sky-like mind in which Every experience was very broad and deep. So this is one mode of our practice to attend to the stream of experiencing. The second, as our minds get quieter instead of attending to the arising experience, we can also begin to turn and look right into awareness. And that, that begins by letting go of even the subtlest layers of thought, the subtle veil of thought. Punjaji, one of the non-dual Indian masters, wonderful teacher, would just pose, ask us to pose the question, right now, am I dreaming? just to ask, am I dreaming right now? Such a powerful question because it directs the attention to look at what's happening, at what's real. Usually there's a thin veil of conceptual thought that's filtering reality. Am I dreaming? We can ask when we notice Thought, whether it's one of the more happening ones or a wisp, where did it come from? Where did it go to? I'll read you something that Punjaji, uh, one of his teachings, he was asked the question, What is this interval between the stream of thoughts? He writes this He says, In that interval is awareness. Between two clouds, There is an interval, and that interval is the blue sky. Slow down the thoughts and look into the intervals. Yes, look into the intervals and pay more attention to the interval than the cloud. That's all the teaching is. Look to awareness. Look to awareness and know this is what you are. This is your own place, your own abode. Stay here. You are home, whole, free. So when we begin to recognize the imaginary film, you know, that that subtle layer it really begins to open the gateway into the mystery, into the what we're experiencing when there's no thinking. One of the things we notice as the mind gets quieter, we're practicing, is that there's sometimes a sense of a ghost self. And I like that language because that's how it feels a bit. It's a sense of a self who's in some way guiding the meditation, a self that's realizing what's happening, that's listening, or a self that's feeling peaceful. It's really the self that we sometimes might call a witness, the self that's maybe on its way somewhere. And when we're not lost in the weather systems, it's possible to relax even this most hidden level of clinging, this ghost self, A description I find really helpful is that when we're caught up some it's like we're looking out at a movie screen and there's this whole play of thoughts and feelings and emotions and even the ghost self in the background but it's all something that's on this movie screen there's this kind of looking out and that to become aware of awareness to become aware of awareness There's a looking back at the projector and even beyond that into the mind of the one that created the movie into awareness itself. So there's a looking to see who's there. It's sometimes called self-inquiry. Who is here? Who is looking? Who is aware? It's found in Theravadan Buddhism. It's found in Tibetan Buddhism. It's found in most of the non-dual traditions, that we bring mindfulness and turn it on awareness itself. So it's a shift, that instead of paying attention to the waves of experience, there's that question, who's knowing this right now? One of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, describes this way of bringing mindfulness to awareness um, with the words, look and see, let go and be free. And as he does it, he uses his hands in a way that have kind of helped me for a really long time. He said when we're usually in our normal state of some some fixation, it's like the the mind is looking out at the screen and he has his hands like this looking out. And he said, so the first part is, Okay, so let's say there's a thought or an image or a sound. Who, who is aware to wonder and just to turn attention back at awareness? Look and see and then completely let go and be free. In the way he describes it, which has been most helpful for me that looking is a very light glancing backward into awareness. There's not a, a, there's not a probing or a penetrating. It's kind of like um, the description of soft eyes that are absolutely available, awake, not pulled back, not pointing forward and probing, just there. So we turn around with soft eyes and glance back. Who's aware right now? And then there's a complete relaxing into whatever is seen in the moment. A complete letting go into that. So in a moment I'd like to just explore it a little more. But I like to have a caveat or just to put out that for many this practice isn't a match at any particular at a certain particular time in practice it can even be confusing so to um, just explore with a curiosity and a light touch knowing you can put aside whatever doesn't doesn't resonate for you just to know that so for now just to take a moment to sweep through the body and relax a bit You might want to explore this with your eyes open, because this is really a practice of of including all that's here in a deep way. And one of the simplest ways to have the eyes open is to look straight ahead and up a bit, maybe thirty degrees from the horizon, and then just let the gaze gently spread to either side. So there's those soft eyes that are just receptive. And as you do, to just sense the space you're in and the space around us, these great skies, the openness. To be aware of the sounds, sounds in the room. Just letting your senses be awake, aware of the life that's here, asking the question who is listening? what is listening? who or what is aware right now? look and see turning the mind back towards awareness And then let go, completely let go into whatever you're aware of. aware look and see turning the mind back towards awareness then just let go It can be natural to have a thought pop up. Well, me, of course. I'm aware. To just notice if there's a thought or thoughts. Who or what is aware of thoughts right now? Look and see. And then relax completely into whatever is true. From the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation When one seeks one's mind in its true state it is found to be quite intelligible although invisible In its true state mind is naked immaculate, not made of anything, being of the voidness, clear, vacuous, without duality, transparent, timeless, not realizable as a separate thing, but as a unity of all things, The one mind being verily of the voidness and without any foundation, one's mind is likewise as vacuous as the sky. To know whether this is so or not, look within thine own mind. Again and again, look within thine own mind. when we look without any thoughts or ideas into who or what is aware we can't find anything there's no thing that can be found many of you might know the word shunyata means empty of thingness of any substantial non-changing entity anatta empty of selfness so when we look into awareness, we can't find a self behind the curtain managing things. A classic Zen story I like, the disciple Hui Ke asked his master Bodhidharma, please help me to quiet my mind. Bodhidharma responded by saying, bring me your mind so I can quiet it. After a long moment of silence, Hui Ke said, well, I can't find my mind. <laughs> There, said Bodhidharma. I have now quieted your mind. I like that because when we look within, there's just nothing we can find. There's no mind substance. We can't locate a center. There's no no edge to experience we can find. There's no firm ground. So it can be disconcerting and scary and incredibly mysterious and enlivening. The Tibetan teachers say, the seeing of no thing is the supreme seeing. No thingness, no self. So this is the first, if we say, well, what is awareness? The first descriptor is, awareness is empty of any thingness, empty in essence. Why are you unhappy says Wei Wu Wei, because 99% of everything you do is for yourself and there isn't one <laughs> one teacher described it this way this looking into awareness it's like jumping off a plane without a parachute and then realizing I mean with a parachute and then realizing you don't have a parachute and then realizing there's no ground to hit and then realizing there's no one that jumped So it just keeps unraveling. So one descriptor of awareness is this empty essence. There's no one, no thing there. But it doesn't mean that awareness is empty of life. It's actually filled with presence. Alive with knowing. Right at this moment. Just paying attention. Sounds are known, vibration is felt, form and color are seen, and knowing happens instantaneously. The nature of mind is cognizance. everything you can possibly see, or hear, or feel, this entire world is a fantastic display appearing in awareness, known by awareness. So this is the second quality of awareness, this knowing capacity. But it's empty knowing, there's no one knowing emptiness, knowing emptiness. The two qualities, emptiness, cognizance, are inseparable, indivisible. It's like a sunlit sky that there's a radiance to the mind and it can't be separated from the space, the boundlessness of mind. And so those two qualities together give this awareness an unconfined capacity absolutely boundless and edgeless, a sea of wakefulness. So this is one description of what we might call the formless, or the absolute, or pure awareness. Empty, wakeful, unconfined. When we bring awareness this pure awareness to the world of form. The expression is love. We meet the ever-changing stream of this life, this living, dying, breathing world with open, wakeful presence and our hearts open. So it's been described that what our mind recognizes as empty awareness, our hearts experience as love. And really to have a fullness of realization, who are we? It's very easy to get attached to one or the other. It's very easy to get attached to a quality of formless space and really want to dwell in that. And there's a subtle aversion to this living world in that. And it's very easy to get attached to the forms and lose sight of the sky, the openness, the emptiness, the pure wakefulness. I'll read you a Japanese proverb. Seeing pure awareness without engaging lovingly with our life is a daydream. Living in this relative world without vision is a nightmare. So this is really what we're talking about is the, the Mahayana, as it describes it beautifully with form, and formlessness that our practice is to really experience that purity of openness and emptiness and absolutely engage with the forms of this world. I'd like to share a a personal story that happened to me on retreat of how this uh, just came alive in a very immediate way recently which is that um, I was, I've been on the phone periodically with my son, Narayan, who's in, in college, freshman year in college, and one of the things that I made really clear to him that mattered to me was that he got a shot for meningitis because there's been a uh, science journal saying that any college freshman in a dorm should get that shot. So, um, But his response was that um, he really didn't want to bother. It's kind of the immortality complex. Oh, come on, it's not going to happen to me. And laziness, he didn't, these are his words, but he didn't want to do it. So it set off in me a real um, kind of a chain reaction of being really angry at him for not cooperating with my wants. And so I stayed with that. I could have said, okay, um, who's aware of this anger? But I, I just stayed with the anger and found that underneath those waves of experience was fear. You know, I was afraid that something bad would happen to him, and um, that he wouldn't be okay. And then underneath that fear, when I stayed with that, was a sense of grieving at the distance between us, the distance of losing him, perhaps on, you know, if he if he really got sick in some way, and also just the distance of. Um, being at odds. And when I stayed with the grieving, with the feeling of pain of separation, really stayed with it, there was love. Underneath the pain was caring. And it was at that time that I felt the love for him, that that's when I said, okay, so who feels love? Who's aware of love? And all there was, was empty, open awareness, but it was suffused with loving, with the flavor of love. And this is one of the pathways that I find so beautiful, that we can be with the waves of experience and really open to them and and really arrive in the fullness and poignancy of our heart and also see in that love, in that compassion, in that joy, that it's empty. And it doesn't go away. What happens is then this whole universe and reality is awareness, completely flavored with, suffused with that quality of heart. So that's one direction of the practice. Another is that if it's very quiet, we can just turn the mind and relax into that openness and emptiness. And then whatever does arise gets touched with compassion, felt with compassion. Now as I began tonight, I said it's just the part of our conditioning to contract and not see what's here, what's always and already here, here now always. And in the uh, Tibetan Dzogchen tradition and also Mahamudra tradition, there's a reflection that I found incredibly powerful to keep, reminding me of what I forget, and I'd like to, as part of closing this talk, um, share it. And the reflection is that it really is the four reasons we forget that we go into trance, and they go like this, that the awakened heart-mind is closer than we think. The second is it's more profound than any conceptual mind can fathom the third is it's easier than we assume and the fourth is it is more wondrous than we imagine so just to take them one at a time as a reflection that we can do together that bodhicitta this awakened heart-mind is closer than we imagine That we have some idea that it's somewhere else, it's out there, down the road. And yet what we discover is there is no out there. There's no world out there. We often think of it like the mind is in the body, we'll point to our mind, we'll say, you know, I'm inside there, awareness is in here. And yet, in a way, our entire experience of our body is known by awareness. Right now, the vibration, tingling, whatever feelings in our heart, whatever thoughts, are known by awareness. Sound, the most distant sound, is known by awareness. So, this awareness, this presence is right here. It's closer than we imagine. It's more profound, more primary than any idea we might have about reality. See if I can find this. Oh, well. Sri Narsargadatta writes, The real world is beyond our thoughts and ideas. We see it through the net of our desires, divided into pleasure and pain, right and wrong, inner and outer. To see the universe as it is, you must step beyond the net. It is not hard to do so, for the net is full of holes. So we need to step through the net of thoughts and ideas. It's more profound. It's beyond that. And when we do, when we get outside of the ideas, already here there's a radiance and a mystery, a beauty that our mental thinking, our sense of being a self, cannot imagine. Rumi writes, I am water. I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of pearling currents, I've lost track of which was mine." So this beauty, this awareness and goodness, it's closer than we can imagine. It's right here. It's more profound. It's beyond any idea, any thought, any sense of self. And then it's easier. That we have this, this idea of spiritual realization as something to obtain, somewhere to get. And often there can be a sense of grimness when we get into the selfing that there really is something that has to happen that's different. Here's the poet Haviz. He writes, What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. It's easier than we think. Look and see what is here right now and then let go let go, become that which we are looking for, let go, be free. We're so in the habit of tensing and trying, we're reminded to rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, to really let go into what is here. And in the moments that we genuinely rest, we find that it really is the secret of the path, this relaxing. It's a secret because it's so different than we think, that it really is just this moment. Can we really wakefully relax? And then what happens to that sense of self? The self is continuously generated by our tensing and dissolves as we relax. Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you'll find a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll find a lot of peace. If you let go absolutely, you'll find absolute peace and tranquility. So it's closer, right here, this awareness, this openness, this wakefulness. It's more profound than any idea, and it's easier. We relax into what's here. And the last is more wondrous, imaho, amazing this mystery we come on to. In the Tibetan teachings, there's a description of how we practice by looking into awareness and becoming that awareness and then moving through the day as a child of wonder. And I love that instruction, to move through the day as a child of wonder, stepping on the earth with reverence letting our minds mingle with the great sky, discovering the natural vastness, the sounds of the birds, all the creatures held in our heart, this world held in our heart. A Child of Wonder. This reading is called Monet Refuses the Operation. Doctor... You say there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris and what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see, to learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. What can I say to convince you the house of parliament dissolved night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air, and change our bones, skin, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world, blue vapor, without end. So it's closer, this miracle of awakening, this awareness is closer, easier, more profound, more wondrous. There's a way in which there's a natural celebrating, it's awareness celebrating itself, love celebrating itself. Shantideva writes The Miracle of Awakening. He says, As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in the dustbin so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. So we have these pathways and they're really precious pathways of paying attention that we can ask what's happening and really notice right now whatever's here and as we meet it with that kindness and presence discover the stillness that knows the flow of experience or we can look back into awareness who is aware right now who is aware and discover that openness that wakefulness that tenderness which is our nature. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments.